0: Thanks, Nick. Uh, let's just uh, bow for a moment in prayer before we open God's word. Father, we thank you for um, what we've already been able to share in this morning, in, in worship together of your great name and of your great gift of your Son. And I thank you that in it is true that your Son is the best friend. Uh, that we could be introduced to. Lord, we ask as we open your word now that you would give us great understanding, Uh, that these would not be my words uh, shared this morning, uh, but what remains at the end would be your word and your spirit would bring conviction where necessary, encouragement and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was to ask you this morning, how do you measure a life? How do you measure a life? We have tools for measuring many things. Uh, Some of us us are very adverse to setting on certain kinds of scales because we don't want to know the answer. There's other ways of measuring other things, whether that's distance, whether it's um, even intellect. You can take a test for that, apparently. But how do you measure a life? And, of course, I'm not just talking about days, the amount of days and years lived. I don't know if any of you are Marvel fans. Um, I'm becoming less and less so, mainly because of this show I'm about to talk about. There was a Marvel show just recently, Moon Knight, uh, for those of you that might know it. And one of the characters in that, the main sort of bad guys, if you will, was a representative on Earth of an Egyptian god, Amet. And Amet was this Egyptian god that was so-called, could weigh souls, could weigh the balance of a life and determine if they were pure or not. And if they were impure, they'd be devoured, just turned to dust in a moment. Now, that was a strange show for many reasons. But the scales and the balancing thing is something I think that a lot of people would connect with that's a lot, how a lot of people go through life. How do you measure a life? Well, what's the good? What's the pure? What's the impure? What's the evil? And we strike a balance. If you get the balance right, or even the good is better, you know, that's that's great. That's how you measure a life. That's how judgment works in a lot of our minds. Well, the problem and the question then arises, just as it does in this uh, TV show as it was with Amet she was an evil goddess. she wanted to wipe out humanity and start again. So then it becomes well who gets to judge then who's gonna balance the scales correctly where there's is justice but there's also fairness where the payments made but the balance is right. who gets to set? that balance who does the measuring is a very important question correctly measuring a life of course can only happen when you have the correct starting point when you have the correct reference and of course that is that we have acknowledged god we talked a bit about that last week but it comes up and repeats here in chapter 5 for us, and especially the phrase in verse 23 this God who holds your breath in his hand. He's the one that can balance whether your life has been honouring to him or not. Uh, in this chapter, we're introduced to Belshazzar. Uh, he is an interesting character. We only see him in this chapter, but we certainly get a bit about him. Uh, there's been songs written about him. I'm not going to sing. For those of you who have been hanging out for part two of the Johnny Cash miniseries, there is the, the song uh, that Johnny Cash sings exactly about this feast of Belshazzar. and It's wonderful. You go home and listen to it. That's, that's fine. But songs have been written about this guy. He's an interesting character. And all the first few chapters of Daniel have been talking about his ancestor, most likely his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and about uh, his seeming conversion at the end of chapter four, to the King, the Most High King of Heaven. This this kingdom and empire of Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar had reigned over it entirely, and he went from a a pagan king with false worship, even demanding worship of himself, and self destructive pride, through to then praising and believing in the one true God. Now we have. Belshazzar in this chapter, who knows all that has happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that's made clear to us, Daniel tells him, you know all this, and yet still chooses not to believe. So this king, Belshazzar, that we're going to think about this morning, we see a few things about him, about what he does, and how that then is balanced by God. I want to think firstly of what he does and before we think about his own personal reaction to it. The first few verses, we get this account of this feast and we see Belshazzar is a blasphemous king. This great feast that he's having with a thousand of his lords is not just extravagant, and there's certainly that, but given the likelihood of the end of the chapter where Belshazzar dies that very night... Think of what a sort of switched-on dude he kind of is. He's having this kind of party probably with an enemy at the gates, just waiting for the right moment to come in. He's not just sort of extravagant in his tastes and desires. He seems to be a lousy ruler. He's having a party while his kingdom falls. And this lifestyle that he's led... Is one of the reasons uh, that we see the, the demolishing, that fulfillment of the demolishing of that first empire. Remember the dream back in chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar was told that first empire was his and it was going to be ended. And here it is being ended this night. And it's not just that he's having a party and that he's about to lose the kingdom, he takes it to another level. As he's enjoying himself at this party, he commands for uh, the, the instruments from the temple to be brought in from Jerusalem, that he might drink out of those, and for all that are there to drink out of them. And not just that, that they would drink out of them and that they would, what does it say, that they would praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wooden stone. He makes a very clear statement about this God. That is, Father Nebuchadnezzar had come to believe in. He's going to take this God and he's going to use him as well for his indulgence. He puts aside the fact that his father had not found out this was the most high king of heaven, the creator of the universe... And he drinks not in praise of him, but instead of praise of the created things around them. There's a bit of a progression in Belshazzar, Belshazzar in some ways that's repeated throughout all of human history in nearly every human heart. When you just want pleasure for pleasure's sake, we call it hedonism, is a term we sometimes use, but when you just want pleasure for pleasure's sake, sake, that usually only ever ends up in one way, ends up in worship of self, but also ends up in sacrilege and idolatry. You start worshipping something, and it's not God. And when we worship what God has created instead of worshiping him as creator, we then begin to blaspheme him. We take his name and his character in vain. We Mock him. And Belshazzar's sin was not in enjoying himself. It wasn't in enjoying God's creation. That itself is not a sin. But in purposely denigrating these sacred vessels that were sanctified to use for God to worship false idols. So there's not just idolatry going on here. Belshazzar wants to mock God he wants to as we would term it blaspheme God he was declaring to everyone there say I have I have God in my hand and I can use him however I want even for my own pleasure he thought he he had some sort of grip and grasp on this God of the universe and that he could use him for his own. He's sending that message to all that are in attendance. He he wants you know glory for himself in a way. But most of all he's making everyone complicit in this as well. Everyone else is joining in. There's nothing much sacred to Belshazzar here is there. You read through just a a verse or two of this man and his character and you realise there's nothing much sacred. He's got wives and concubines. He's partying while the empire that he's ruling is falling. He's taking the sacred elements of one nation's religion that was in his own kingdom had been said to be worth something and he was denigrating it to worship false gods. All that mattered to him was his indulgence. And he thought that he was invincible. No doubt in this moment that he thought, I'm something else. He was trying to bend all of the universe to his own making and vessel for his service. Have you ever tried to bend reality like that in some way? Have you ever tried to to grasp something that you cannot grasp or make something happen that you cannot happen or purposely do something knowing what the result would be but saying, that nah, it won't work like that. We can think of, in a lighter example to begin with, think of someone who is lactose intolerant saying, that cream will not affect me like it usually would. Still suffering days later. You can't always twist reality, can you? What is true is always true. And yet we sometimes try to hold God in our hands. We try and twist the power of the Most High King of Heaven to our desires and whims. seems ridiculous, but there's moments in life when we do that. Not just rebel against God, we've all done that at some point. There's moments when we actually try to control God. Put reins on him. Make him a servant to us. Now, in some ways, we do that when uh, in, in life, when we try to justify something that we know God has said, do not do this because this will happen. We say, ah, it won't happen this time. Or, as some people have said to me, when we've had heavy conversations, like, God has said this. Yeah, but won't, won't God forgive me? Yes, but that's not how it works. That's not how we're meant to use God. We're warned directly against doing that. Paul tells us in Romans that if we sin just for the sake of doing whatever we want, we can't say, you know, grace the bounds, so I'm going to abuse it. No, that doesn't work like that. We can't hold God in our hands, we can't control God. And when we try to control God, we usually end up blaspheming him. We end up denigrating his name, his character, and who he is. And Belshazzar was, no doubt, a blasphemous king. And notice though in verse 5, immediately, immediately, as he's doing this, as he's taking the cup from the temple use and drinking unto the false idols, immediately this, like a human hand, appears and begins to write on the wall. You notice the effect on him is pretty immediate too. He doesn't have the same cockiness and arrogance anymore, does he? The blasphemous king now becomes the payal king. Three times it's mentioned that his colour changes. Verse 6, I think it's verse 9 and verse 10 as well. Not just his colour changes, his whole body starts to react to what's going on. His knees are knocking. His confidence is gone, isn't it? Again, this is a moment that has been depicted in various art forms all through, uh, since this probably. Probably. Rembrandt has a a painting of Belshazzar's feast with a writing on the wall. Lord Byron wrote a poem that's well known. Again, I'm not going to do all of it. But the monarch saw and shook and bade no more rejoice. All bloodless whacked his look and tremulous his voice. Let the men of law appear, the wisest of the earth, and expound the words of fear which mar the royal mirth. Others have sung of it, as I've said. Johnny Cash has a song that tells a story. And the phrase, the writings on the wall, is something we're all familiar with when the judgment is determined. Even sports commentators will use it at a certain point in a game. The writings on the wall now, this is all over for whatever team in Adelaide you support. It seems like this is something we can grasp. Is it something humanity looks at, this story of Belshazzar, and even his reaction, and go, I guess there's moments like that when it becomes clear that something is not right. Now, Belshazzar's reaction, although he doesn't know exactly what it says, he knows it's not good news. And all, all who live lives like Belshazzar has lived... Who ignore God all the way through, all are usually sickened and shocked when he actually turns up. John Lennox put it this way: The God that Belshazzar didn't believe in existed. Sorry, the God that Belshazzar didn't believe existed had broken through his feeble defenses and finally gained the king's undivided attention. It must have been terrifying for him. To discover in this way that the God he did not believe in was the God who was there. And just like Nebuchadnezzar before him, when something happened that he didn't understand, he sought out the wisdom of those around him to give him an understanding, a a definition of what was going on. And it's only the the intervention of the, the queen, most likely his mother, who tells him about Daniel and his reputation. Like I said it's a familiar story, even in the brighter world. The phrasing is familiar. It might even be a familiar sense of, I've had that moment. And there's, I suppose, a point that I want to get through this morning, especially if you are here last week as well, would you rather have a moment like gemi or a moment like Belshazzar? Would you rather have a time of humbling where you realise you must turn your eyes to the one true God and put yourself under his hand? Because if you don't put yourself under God's hand in that moment, you'll have a moment like Belshazzar where you will be weighed. Daniel enters the story, and we have to realise that uh, between the end of, well, the time of chapter 4 and now, a lot of time has probably passed. Daniel's no longer the young man that he once was when he first came to Babylon. A lot of the circumstances have changed. Nebuchadnezzar's no longer ruling. Daniel seems to be forgotten in the king's court by all but. A few. There's a few things that haven't changed. We see how Daniel interacts with and speaks to the king. His reputation hasn't changed as one who can bring the answer. Daniel's faith, of course, hasn't hasn't changed at all. Now this writing on the wall. Is something that is desperate to have interpreted. And he's offering all kinds of rewards as well. You see, it's repeated a couple of times as Nick read it for us. You know, the robe, the necklace, the third place in the kingdom. Again, very ironic to be offering that, knowing what's going to happen that night. A meaningless gift in some ways. He's the third place in my kingdom. You have it for about two hours. None of these things are going to tempt Daniel, not just because he knows the end, but because that's not ever what he's been after. He's only interested in sharing the message that God needs for Belshazzar to hear. And this was a message of uncompromising, straight truth of judgment. And he provides the reasons for it as well. And he lists off, before he even gets to the writing on the wall, he says, you know all this, is one of the phrases he used. So Belshazzar's pride is an exact evidence that he hasn't learnt from his father's lesson in pride. His blasphemous use of the vessels in the temple. His worship of false idols with them. Verse 22, when Daniel is speaking to Belshazzar, he says, after he's talked about Nebuchadnezzar's experience and time, he says, But you and you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He knew all this and did not humble his heart. He goes on to say, But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. He's decided that he would use the God of heaven somehow and somehow use him as an instrument of worship for his false gods, the gods of creation of wood and fire and stone. So knowing the truth of this God, but yet Instead of worshipping him in humility as his father had learned, he openly defies him. Blasphemes him, lifts himself up against God. And he's now without excuse. It's clear to everyone there, remember there's a thousand lords as well as all the others. They know what he's done. They also know what has happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He's without excuse, and the very God in whom, the very God who holds his breath in his hands, he's the God that is blaspheming. And that hand must do something. You know, the hand of God appears many places in Scripture. One of the most notable places where the hand and the finger of God appears, of course, is in the writing of the Ten Commandments with Moses. Writing down the very heart of God for his people and for those who would follow after him and the ideal that he would have. And the very first couple are about: you shall have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven images. So when the hand of God appears here to do some more writing there's no surprise it's in the context of idolatry of false worship and to break God's commands to break God's heart for us to not follow him with all our heart knowing he has intentions for us to live under his will to know and do that willingly that comes with a breaking when you break God's commandment, there has to be a payment made. The equation is fairly simple. Again, as Lennox puts it, if you look at the equation and the scales, Belshazzar's system, it's easy to determine what his system was. He had no concern for God. No concern whatsoever. His only concern was for God was to use him for false worship. He showed that his pleasures meant more to him than humbling himself before God. He equated God as nothing. So if that then means he's equated God as nothing, what does God see him as? There has to be some form of reckoning. The message itself is, that's written on the wall, you're weighed in the balance and you're found wanting and the kingdom will be taken from you and this is certain. He'd been weighed in the balance of God's perfect justice. Remember at the end of chapter 4 we talked about God's works always being right and his ways being just, always. That was something Nebuchadnezzar could praise God for because he knew God's mercy had protected him and exalted him again after his time in humility. But here with Belshazzar, that same balance of scales is there, the same God is there, but Belshazzar is not interested in humbling himself. He's already had that chance. He is now beyond repentance. He lifted himself up against God. And now not just the kingdom would be taken from his hand, but his real life would be taken. The hand of God is a, as we talked about last week, a wonderful thing, but it's also a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we're told. But all those who shake their fist at God... Will end up falling into his hand for judgment. Now, Belshazzar's story is a sobering one because it ends with that very night he was killed. The kingdom is handed over to Darius. There's so much that this story teaches us if we had hope and wonder at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story that even the most proud on the earth could be humbled and then praise God and be returned and have a relationship with him. Look at Belshazzar and go, how dangerous it is to not listen to a warning, to not listen to the voice of God, to not subject yourself under the hand of God. So, searching questions from this, isn't there? What then in my own life have I not humbled myself in? Where have I not put myself under God's hand? What do I know about God? And sometimes that can be a very small amount, and that's fine. We're going to spend all eternity figuring out the wonderful nature and character of God. But what do I know about God that is true and how it relates to me and my life here? But what do I know that I've actually just suppressed or ignored or mocked? There's various moments in life where God puts his hand on something, puts his finger on something in your life. Those can be moments of great humbling and suffering and pain at times, as we acknowledge we, yeah, we have, we have failed. We've let, not just let God down. We've broken His commandments, and we've failed to love those around us as well. Those moments can be incredibly hard. But what will we do when we know that the God who holds our breath in His hands? desires us to submit to him, to love him, to trust him. As I said before, do we want a Nebuchadnezzar moment or a Belshazzar moment? And of course we've got two people in this passage that are poles apart in some ways. But you notice they have similar Babylonian names. So Bel Shazar and Belt as Daniel was called, very similar names, and Bel as Daniel was called, and Belshazzar. That sort of means Baal protects my life. Baal protects my life. The main god of, of Babylon at the time, Baal or Baal. That's the one that protects my life. Daniel's name, on the other hand, his his Hebrew. Name means God is my judge. And here in this encounter, we see the full meaning of those names coming together in some form or another. There's no accidents in God's word, even the names. That night in the the banquet hall of Belshazzar, Bel, or Baal, did a terrible job of protecting the life of one of his faithful followers. Absolutely horrible job. Did not protect him at all. And God was proven to be the judge of all. The one who would weigh everything and balance everything perfectly. Two men with somewhat similar Babylonian names, but very different identities. One who would choose his whole life to live for himself. And the other who lived his whole life submitting himself under God's hand. Even if it meant being a captive in a foreign place. The contrast is stark between these two. But we're not meant to be impressed by the status of a king. We're meant to value what God values. We're meant to value the faithfulness and the consistency and the the wisdom that we see in Daniel. But what is he trusting in most of all? Also, we should never disregard the testimony of things that have happened before us. Not just things that have happened to us where God's hand might have been upon us and helped us and protected us or taught us something, but also in the lives of others as we hear people speak of what God has done for them that is not something to ignore. Belshazzar's ignoring of his father's experience added to his condemnation. Because God is always, always trying to reach through and tell us something true and loving about himself. Or warn us about something. And we don't always hear it from an audible voice from heaven. We don't always see it written in the sky. We don't always see it with a finger writing on the wall. But sometimes we hear it in the lives of those around us those who have come before us, those who are living under God's hand themselves. We do very well to listen to them. So Belshazzar here is weighed in the balance. And he's found wanting. And he's found wanting because he's gone against God, He's chosen His path. And He'd acted that way against evidence, against testimony. What does that speak to us this morning? Not just that we need to make our identity firm, just as Daniel's was, or that we need to acknowledge the God that holds our breath in His hand. That we need to acknowledge what we do know. Well, God's still writing things. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says uh, that God now writes on hearts. He says that you are a letter. If you are a follower of Jesus, that you are a letter from him to others. So what is your story saying? What is God writing in your life? There's a testimony to who he is. We also see that as much as the world might try to suppress God or box him in, we see he's powerful, alive and eternal and able to break through at any moment. How do you measure a life? Well, it depends on which cup you want to drink from, I suppose. Oh, Shazza chose a cup of pride and rebellion against God. And we so often sometimes do the same, just toasting to ourselves. Or there's another cup. Scripture calls us there were several cups in reference But there's a cup of suffering that we're told about. It's filled up with the cost of sin, the wrath of God, the punishment for our our sin. We can't drink that one. We could try, but we can't. We'll never get to the bottom of it. We can't pay or atone or fix our own sin. We just can't. We'll never finish it. Even if you tried from the rest of your life, from this moment on, to pay off the debt you owe, you'll never be able to do it. But there's someone who took that cup and drank it to the last dregs, to the last drop fully for us. And that, of course, was, was Christ. And again, there the scales are perfectly balanced. We have, on the one hand, all of humanity who's ever existed and all of their sins and their breaking of God's commands. All of us here, all of us around the world, all of us, anywhere. All of that sin needing a payment. And us not being able to pay for it. But here at the cross, the scales were balanced. Where God set it right, putting everything on Jesus, which wasn't fair by any means. But somehow in God's system entirely just and perfect. And God's the way God measures a life is never there's no mistakes. He knows the heart, he weighs the balance, not of good versus wrong. Not of good versus wrong, but of humble, simple faith that lives under his hand, believing he is the creator of the universe and that he sent his son for me. Versus a heart that is proud or defiant or choosing not to acknowledge God. So the only question that truly remains, if you think of your life and measure your own life in this moment, you think there is something not finished. There's something I can't complete. There's something I can't pay for. There's only one place that can be finished. There's only one spot that can be all done with and measured out and the balance put in order, where we can be right with God and have our sins forgiven, and that is to put our faith in Jesus and what he's done. To acknowledge the God who in, in his hand he holds our breath Longs for us to be in His hand forever. Let's pray, Father. This morning we again are in awe, I suppose, of the the great love that You've shown to us. Where we do do see our own sin, we see how we've failed You, how we haven't always followed. What you have desired for us, how we have not loved you with all our hearts and souls and minds and strengths, how we haven't loved those around us, how we've lived for ourselves and how I've done that, and Lord, you love us, and you give us opportunity to turn to you, to put ourselves under your hands so you can lift us up, Lord, we thank you this morning for your son who has come And taken all of our sin on himself. That he has died to pay that price that we couldn't pay. Lord, thank you for the new life that we can have in him. And we ask that each one of us here would truly consider our life before you. And have you as the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Luke, for that challenging message.